The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, probably one of the more brilliant guests that we've had. Not saying that uh, our past guests uh, leading up to this one were, I think I got it right in order, uh, but we've had Maggie Haberman from the New York Times. We've had Ricky Rose, the biggest boss, great rapper and entrepreneur. We've had the United States Surgeon General, and now we have none other than Randall Kennedy. How are you doing today, my brother? Very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. No, I'm, I'm I'm appreciative of you spending some time with me today. You know, we start each one of our episodes the same way, uh, and it gives our listeners an opportunity to kind of know who they're listening to and also understand the path that you took in case you have young people out there who want to emulate you. Um, but walk us through the arc of your career, and yours is, shall I say, a storied one in academia and a public intellectual. But walk us through the arc of your career from Justice Marshall's Chambers to joining Harvard's faculty and now being one of the more senior members of the Harvard Law Faculty. Did you always see yourself as an academic and intellectual? No, not always. I want to, I want to take it further back. Okay. So I was born in Columbia, South Carolina in 1954. My parents were refugees from the Jim Crow South, but I've always kept very close ties to my relatives in South Carolina. When I was a kid growing up, I spent many summers in South Carolina. I spent major holidays in South Carolina. So I have have very fond South Carolina feelings. In Washington, D.C., I went to a a very fine high school. In fact, the the best school I attended was my high school, St. Albans School for Boys. And then from there, I went to uh, Princeton University, had a good time there. I went to Oxford. I went to Yale Law School. I clerked for a court of appeals judge by the name of Jay Skelly Wright. Then I clerked for a truly, truly great man, Thurgood Marshall, the Supreme Court. Then I joined the Harvard Law School faculty, and that's where I've been ever since. I've been at Harvard Law School for the past 30, well, since 1984, let me put it like that. So let me ask you this question. How did clerking for Justice Marshall, because we all know him to be a luminary. I mean, if I mean, he is on the route, Mount Rushmore, truly of jurisprudence. I mean, if you had to pick yes. four people, he is he's up there and he's probably the f- only unanimous choice across all across all efforts. So how did clerking for Justice Marshall shape your scholarship, your career and your orientation toward the topic of race and the law? Well, I mean, he was he was very important. I mean, he was he was important in my life before I worked for him. Uh, in my household, uh, his name came up often, and his name came up often because in 1947, my father watched an oral argument in which Thurgood Marshall sought to invalidate 
the whites-only Democratic primary in South Carolina. It was a case called Rice. Uh, Elmore versus Rice. Elmore versus Rice. I mean, George Elmore was a Renaissance Negro. I talk about George Elmore all the time. My father knew Mr. Elmore. And just a little background for listeners. George Elmore owned a five and dime store. He owned a, he had a taxi, took pictures. He had a liquor store and he had the, he was so fair skinned that he could pass for being white and he had the audacity to register to vote. And they told him no. And he was the wrong man to tell no to. Um, So he fought back. He lost everything, but fought back. And let's underline what you just said. He paid a cost. He lost everything. But my father watched that argument and always talked about that argument. And just to show you the way things were in 1947, 1948, the thing my father talked about was not the legal doctrine that was at issue, the state action doctrine. That's not what he talked about. My father talked about the fact that the judges called Thurgood Marshall, Mr. Marshall. And that was a big deal because in the Jim Crow era, under the etiquette of Jim Crow, white people did not call black men Mr. They might call a black physician doctor. They might call a um, black minister reverend. But they did not call black men Mr. And it made that that Thurgood Marshall, he was the most impressive person in that courtroom and everybody knew it. And they called him Mr. Marshall. And my father always talked about that. So I, you know, I, I grew up with Thurgood Marshall, you know, that I, I, I had the privilege of, of working for him. And, and you guys, you know, did he teach me a lot? Yeah, he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about the law and the limits of law. I mean, Thurgood Marshall, you know, at every level of the court system, as a trial attorney, as an appellate attorney, I mean, he he did wonderful things at every every level. I mean, he was Solicitor General of the United States. He was a Court of Appeals judge. He did it all. But he also was very attentive to the limits of the law. That, that, was a, that was an important thing that he emphasized. So, for instance, he, he, he talked about Deep South and uh, uh, a, a sheriff, a sheriff uh, came to him and um, said, listen, we don't allow black, you know, you, you, you better make sure that you're on that last train out of here. Because if you're not, you're in deep trouble. Now, Thurgood Marshall said, you know, he had his Constitution of the United States in his pocket. And he knew that what this sheriff you know, was saying and doing this, you know, the implicit threat was wrong. But the Constitution at that moment wasn't going to help him out. And he yep. made sure he was on that train. And he emphasized, you know, it's important to get good sheriffs as opposed to bad sheriffs, because you have a, if you have a bad sheriff, you know, the law is, you know, maybe can be helpful, but maybe not. And he was full of stories like that. It's amazing how as much things as much as things change in the civil rights work I do and a lot of these police shooting cases, those themes still remain the same. The limits of the law. 
I've, I've run into that, particularly with Andrew Brown and Elizabeth City. I'd be remiss if I didn't note and, and take note of your South Carolina roots as a South Carolina boy myself from the big city of Denmark, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Now, how did your experiences, and I know you talked about George Elmore, but talk about your parents' experiences as a, a you, you said, refugee from the Deep South. How did they shape your views on race and ultimately your race scholarship? Oh, very much. I'll tell you the story. My, my father was a postman. And in those days, he drove a postal truck. And he was in Newberry, South Carolina, and he was stopped. because in the, And a uh, 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 sheriff told him... We don't allow Negroes to uh, carry guns down here because in those days, the, the, the drivers of U.S. postal trucks would, would have a firearm on them. And this man saw that and said, we, you know, we don't allow Negroes to be wearing firearms, you know. And he it, it looked for a moment as though he was going to try to arrest my father. My father said, listen. Call my superiors if I've done something wrong, but I'm not getting off this truck. And he just hightailed out of there. And he called my mother and he said, that's it. Uh, I can't, you know, we're, we, you know, I, I feel like we're in danger. And they moved. And his experiences, my father is from Louisiana. My mother was from Columbia. And especially my my father was particularly important in my thinking about race because he had a very distinctive view. My father never forgave the United States of America for what he viewed as the country's betrayal of African-Americans. He was he was in the he was uh, in the army. And he talked about how how terrible it was. He said, you know, think of this. You have African-Americans in uniform who are willing to sacrifice their lives for the United States of America. Yet they cannot go into places that German prisoners of war can go into. And he never got over that. My father was thoroughly pessimistic. His view was that, no, we shall not overcome. And uh, that was his, you know, and, 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 and he didn't back off of that. Now, let me ask you, let me ask you a question real quick to, to dig in a little deeper. And yeah. I, I kind of hate I kind of hate this question, but I'm going to frame it for my listeners because my, my dad was somewhat similar. But was your father a, a revolutionary type saying that we we shall not overcome unless we go and, and take it? and take our freedom back? And how would he have viewed the election of Barack Obama? You know, my, I, I've thought of that many times. My father would have, would, have, would have been very happy with the election of Barack Obama. He would have been a Barack Obama supporter. He would have rejoiced. He would have been very happy. He would have been thoroughly surprised. And I will say this. My father would not have been taken aback by what has occurred since the election of Barack Obama. And here now, again, I, you know, I've taken a very different position than my father. He was a pessimist. We shall not overcome. I have been a racial optimist. 
I have been on the side of those like, you know, the great Martin Luther King Jr., like the great John Lewis, who said emphatically, we shall overcome if we, you know, we struggle, we are persistent, we are intelligent, we shall overcome. I've been part of, of, of that camp, you know, as opposed to my father. But I will say this. My father did have, and it it hurts me to say it to tell you the truth, but my father and people like him did have a, you know, they, they did have a glimpse of America that, you know, they, 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 they had a view of America that I thought was overwrought. I thought it was an exaggerated view of American racism. And unfortunately, I think events have shown us, no, it wasn't exaggerated. It was realistic and we've got to grapple with it. Now let's talk about your newest book. Uh, that was, that last answer was a lot. And and I'm, I'm going to unpack that in my own head, but your new book is Say It Loud. It's the reason that you're here. And you you are an accomplished author. But what new ground does this new book plow compared to your previous books on race? And what inspired you to pick up the pen and write this one? Well, this is a book of essays that collects you know, 25 years worth of essays. Some of them have been published before, but I redid all of them. I updated and revised. There are a number of places where I, you know, say straight out. I said this 15 years ago, um, but I was wrong. And, uh, and you know, I, you know, you, you learn. I mean, hopefully you learn. You, you know, you read new stuff. You get new evidence. Uh, you have new perspectives. And so this is a book of essays that collects 25 years worth of work. And... Some, like I said, some of these essays are completely new. The longest essay in the book has never been published before. It's an essay called Derek Bell and Me. And it is an essay about my colleague, Derek Bell. Derek Bell was the first black tenured professor at Harvard Law School. He's been in the news a bit lately because Derek Bell is often viewed as the sort of the godfather of uh, critical race theory. And we had a very interesting and very complex relationship. Relationship, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because in a way, my father was close. uh, Derek Bell's thinking was quite close to my father's thinking. I mean, Derek Bell had this notion of what he called the permanence of racism. He, too, was part of the camp that said, we shall not overcome. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't struggle. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to make things better. But in his view, given the, you know, his view was if you take a look at American history, if you take a look at the constellation of forces, Derek Bell's view was that white supremacy was essentially unmovable. And that's just the way it was. Let me ask you a question. It makes me think a little bit as you talk about how we define the issue of supremacy and racism. I ascribe to the notion of Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, 
who said that if you want to lynch me, that's your problem. But if you have the power to lynch me, that's my problem. And he looks at racism as this type of power construct. As we go down this path and talk about your book, how, how does your book or how do you view in your scholarship what racism is and its impact on black Americans today? I disagree with what Stokely Carmichael, and, and here's why. What people think matters a lot. If at point, you know, it, it, it may very well be that on Monday, a person has a thought, a terrible thought, but, you know, they're in no position to effectuate that terrible thought. They can't hurt you because, you know, they're, they're let's say they're marginalized. They don't have power. OK. On, on, on Friday, they might have power. I mean, the, you know, things change. The world changes. Um, we've seen ideas that at one point were very marginal, you know, only, a, you know, very marginal. We thought that those ideas had really been pushed to the side. Only a few people believed in those ideas. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, things change. So in my view, ideas matter a whole lot. And let me just add one other thing. They matter for everyone. They don't just matter for, you know, white people. It's not, you know, it's not just the case that white people have bad ideas. Black people can have bad ideas, too. And, you know, black people can be racist, too. I was about to ask you this question because I don't I because I ascribe to the notion and I'm just the questioner here. This is I'm not I'm not the student in your class where you I, I would you would ask a question and I would probably get a C on the exam because of this answer. I made enough C's in law school regardless. But I, I, I have a hard time thinking that black folk can be racist because of the fact that I ascribe to the notion that racism is a power construct. How do you respond to that? I respond to it in two ways. I would challenge that on empirical grounds by saying, what do you mean black people don't have power? For eight years... Barack Obama was president of the United States. As we speak, the head of the Defense Department in the United States of America is an African-American. Across the country, there are black people who are chiefs of police, who are mayors, who are the heads of uh, personnel in firms and schools, et cetera. So, you know, just on empirical grounds, there are plenty of black people, actually, who have power over people's careers. And so I would, I would challenge you there. Secondly, even if it were the case, let's just suppose for the sake of argument that a person doesn't have power, I, I'd go back and I'd say, listen, person might not have power on Monday, but on Friday they might have power. Or let's take, let's take the case of the homeless person. The person has no money, totally homeless. You look at this person, you say, gosh, that person doesn't have any power. Well, if that person has a knife and grabs a hold of you, you know, while you're walking home and puts a knife next to your throat, that person has power and, and, the ideas in that person's head matter. So I think we, we all have to be attentive 
to our intellectual, ethical, moral hygiene. There's nobody, there's nobody, there's no group about whom we can be inattentive because everybody counts. Everybody matters. I can't, I, I might just come show up in a class one day just to sit there and ask the questions. Because to your empirical point, I would say that is absolutely true in a vacuum. You know, Barack Obama's power in a vacuum looks to be absolute. However, you cannot look at Barack Obama in the abstract and not mention Mitch McConnell was also speaker of or, or president of the Senate mm-hmm. for six years, which mitigated and, and constrained whatever power in that system the president may have had. Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, Obama obviously wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't an emperor. (laughs) He was, he, you know, his his power was limited. It was, you know, it was contested. But my only point was that he, you know, yes, limited, but did he have power? So, you know, did he have the power? And unfortunately, he didn't, as far as I'm concerned, he didn't use some of the power he had that he that ought is, to That is where we agree wholeheartedly. And, and you know, he, he had the power to, for instance, uh, commute the sentences of all people on death in, on, in federal death row. I wish that he had done that. He had the power to let out more people who were being imprisoned overly long than he did. I mean, he, he you know, he, he commuted some sentences, but he, he could have done more. And he could have done more on, a, you know, a range of other areas. By the way, let me just say quickly, if you were a student, no, I do not. The people, frankly, who probably get the best grades in my classes are the people who contest me the most. Those are the ones that are the most interesting to read. Those are the ones from whom I learn the most. So <laughs> I love know, it. I, I love I'm, it. I'm, I'm, I'm open to debate. Let me ask you this question about Say It Loud. Um, you know, I subscribe to the view that in our recent lifetimes, there are two American flashpoints on race for black folk. It was the election of Barack Obama and the white lash that followed. Shout out to Van Jones for coming up with that term. And the emergence of this Black Lives Matter movement, which I submit is partly a response to the Obama brand of blackness that left many folks in my generation wanting after eight years of Obama's White House was followed by Trump. So what space does this book occupy in our evolving understanding of who black people are in post-Obama Black Lives Matter era that we're in? You know, it, it, it partakes it partakes of some of the sentiment that you were talking about. So throughout this book, this this book exhibits the impatience, the frustration, the disappointment that you alluded to. That is to say, here you are. I mean, I went to Barack Obama's inauguration that cold morning, it was an incredibly cold morning. I was there. It was one degree below zero. I'll never forget it. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was dangerously cold. I waited with my oldest son for several hours. And despite the cold, I felt great. You looked, you saw all these people. And frankly, I had the feeling, I thought to myself, this is wonderful. I am here 
you know, thank the Lord. I am here at a moment that will memorialize a, a tremendous change in American life. I felt as if I, I said, I thought to myself, this is what it must have felt like on January 1, 1863, when folks heard about the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, I thought that I was at this juncture where things were going to turn dramatically. All right. Then we see what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, then we see people, another South Carolinian, by the way, in the House of Representatives, the president of the United States is speaking and a South Carolinian shouts out, you lie. Would never have done that with any white president. Any Ever. white president would never have happened. And then... You know, ultimately, we get Donald Trump. And so, you know, there, there is this tremendous feeling of disappointment, frustration, anger. And uh, to that extent, I'm fully with the folks who've been out in the streets and, you know, fighting back Black Lives Matter movement, other other dissidents and good for them. Now. A place where I, I differ, a place where I differ is I do think that folks, dissidents, have sometimes uh, gone too far and not been, you know, pragmatic enough. They've, they've, they've sort of, I think, uh, been sort of extravagant in certain positions they've taken. Let me give you one. And I'd be interested in your view. I don't, I don't know what your view is, but you know, in the law school world, in my world, in the last couple of years, prison abolition and police abolition has been really big. I mean, you go to a core, you know, you teach a course on criminal law and there are a whole bunch of students, you know, and they're, you know, prison abolition, police abolition. And, you know, and that, and that's where they are. And, you know, I, I used to teach criminal law. I don't, I don't teach criminal law now, but, you know, I, I do interact with these students. And I say, what do you, you know, what? It seems to me that's, that's, that's extravagant. It's untenable. Society, a modern, large society needs an agency that has the authority, has the force to protect people against criminality. I want good policing. We need police, but we need good policing. So I actually um, agree with you on the point of uh, defunding the police and prison abolition. I am more of of a moderate pragmatist. I find myself in line with my friend, Mayor Randall Wolfen in Birmingham or Frank Scott in Little Rock, where we want, and because basically super voters, my mom and her friends, uh, the Democratic base, they all, they, they don't want, uh, they don't want less police or no police. They want better police. And I mm-hmm. ascribe to that notion as well. But I do think uh, if you look from a 50,000 foot view, your, your criticism is very similar to that of, it's not, it's not uncharted territory. It's very similar to that of, of some of the older members, let's say of core SCLC yeah. had of SNCC. And I think it's very generational. And I think that it's, it, it's, it's not surprise, and it's actually healthy for the discourse and the discussion because individuals like yourself have seen, have come through, 
And those criticisms help these these newer organizations become more pragmatic and more successful in the long run. I think you're right. Um, I'm not calling you old, but I am just saying that. I, I am old. <laughs> you're not calling me old, but I am old. In fact, today is my birthday. Oh, my goodness. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. I turned 67 today. And oh I goodness. teach a course. I teach a course on the second reconstruction. It's basically a legal history of the civil rights movement. And when students, you know, may, you know, ask me, well, you know, Professor Kennedy, you know, where are you? Where, how do you situate yourself in terms of racial thought, ide- you know, ideology? Where are you? And I, you, it is partly generational because I say, listen, I am a Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Bayard Rustin, we shall overcome black and white together integrationist. That's where I am. I am a pre-1965 student nonviolent coordinating committee person. I am not a post-1965. I am not with, you know, the Stokely You're not with, Stoke, you're not with Stokely and no, H. Rap. No, and, I'm not. And, I'm not. I'm not a black power right. No. Yeah. I am or, I am, or I am, Cleveland Sellers. That's what my dad falls into. That you know, my my son is actually named Stokely after Stokely Carmichael. But yeah, and that but that tension mm-hmm. is the reason we were able to get the successes that we got in the sixty four and sixty five Voting Rights Act because I think it's necessary. Maybe, I, or, or to put it a little bit differently, a, a, another place where you know I come to conflict with. Uh, my students, whom I admire and like, even in the group of disagreement, I hope that they feel the same way toward me. Um, respectability politics. I embrace black respectability politics. Ah. So, I mean, you know, and, and, and boy, we really, and students, I mean, they, you know, this really, you know, huh? Are you kidding? I say, listen. Take a look at the way that Martin Luther King Jr., the greatest dissident of the Second Reconstruction, as far as I'm concerned. Take a look at the way that he comported himself. And by the way, I say to them, take a look at the way that uh, take a look at the way that you know Malcolm X comported himself. I'm not a Malcolm X person. Like I said, I'm an integrationist. But take a look at the way he spoke. Take a look at the way that he he dressed. He had a type of respectability politics. So all respectability politics means is be attentive to the way in which you come across to the audience that you're trying to influence. I think that a lot of people, when they hear respectability politics, they think, oh, you're just dressing up for or, you know, tailoring your message to the white folks. No, I, I am attentive to my fellow white Americans, but I'm also attentive to black Americans. I mean, when James Farmer was constructing the Freedom Rides, mm-hmm. He told the Freedom Riders, I want you to look a certain way. Not only, it wasn't just, you know, 
skirts and coats and ties and all that. It wasn't just for the white folks. It was for the black folks, too. It was when you get arrested, when you get arrested, I want your aunts and uncles and parents to be proud of you and say, yeah, that's my relative standing up. Good for, you know, good for junior. You know, my only response to that would be, and this is sensationalized, and I know, and I hate sensationalistic arguments when you're having these intellectual discussions, but for all of the respectability politics that enveloped Martin Luther King Jr., they still killed him. And, uh, you know, I, I look at Philando Castile, for example, as one of the best uh, of our generation. He was somebody mm-hmm. who worked in the cafeteria. He actually worked an extra job so that he could pay down the school lunch debt, which is I don't even know how in America we have a school lunch debt. But yet he had multiple contacts with police. He did everything he was supposed to do. He was a registered gun owner and they still killed him in the car. So that that is, I think, just as we started this conversation with limits of law, I think there are limits of respectability as well. I would agree with that. And one has to be very careful about respectability politics. I mean, after all, in a yet earlier generation, it was viewed as being disreputable to, for instance, like jazz. It was, be, it was viewed as disreputable to be arrested. It was viewed as disreputable to ally yourself with those furthest down, the sharecroppers, for instance. So we, it was viewed as disreputable to link arms with gay folks. So we have to be very, you know, yeah, you know, we have to be careful about what we view as respectable and, you know, not respectable. Respectability politics can degenerate into a sort of orthodoxy that just puts down those things which the establishment views as unconventional. So, you know, at every point, we have to subject everything to questioning. Uh, But mark my last sentence. We have to subject everything Everything. to questioning, including ideas that, you know, we think are fashionable. They come out of our mouths. we, We sort of like it. We think it's cool. Subject that to questioning, too. My last question for you, and I, I, I know you're busy and celebrating your birthday, and I, I am somebody who thinks that we should celebrate every year that we take around the sun. It's a blessing. But I, I couldn't have you here and not talk about critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we can all agree that the current debate from conservatives around critical, critical race theory, and I don't know if this is the legal term, but it's somewhat bullshit. I'll throw that out there. But on the actual merits of CRT, you've had your share of criticism of CRT. What's the future of critical race theory and what's your take on the renaissance of CRT with folks like Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1690 Project and Ibram Kendi really emerging in the past year or so? And what, even more importantly, should be the proper place uh, for this in our dialogue and politics? Yes. So you're right. I have been critical of certain, I've been critical of certain features of critical race theory. And because I've been critical, sometimes very critical, 
You have organizations that, you know, invite me on because they think they say, oh, here's this guy. He's sort of a left, you know, he's a left liberal, but he's a critic and they want to use me against critical race theory. So let me just state at the very beginning, I think that the current right wing attack on critical race theory is abhorrent. It is it is the latest iteration of a long history of trying to vilify and trying to silence uh, progressive thought that was seeking to advance the, the, the mission of racial justice in America. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in slavery time, uh, abolitionists, you, they put up, you know, people put up a bounty on the head of abolitionists and destroyed their presses. In the segregation period, uh, you know, uh, people who were against segregation were subject to being terrorized. You know, there's a long history of this. Uh, You know, even the language that is used. So you have people who are saying, oh, this is, you know, this is just uh, communism. This is just Marxism. This is authoritarianism. What? They were saying that about Thurgood Marshall. They were saying that about Martin Luther King Jr. They were saying that about Bayard Rustin. This is not new. This is just a repeat of something over and over in American history. And I would say this, even if you are critical of critical race theory, you should be against what the the right-wing attack on it, because the right-wing attack on it actually represents a threat to freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of, you know, intelligence in American life. So that's Point one. Point two, do I have criticism still? Yeah, I have some criticisms. I think that the critical race, some critical race theory people, you know, they, they go overboard. So, for instance, yes, it's true that racism has been central in American life, in every aspect of American life, the most intimate spheres of American life, the most public spheres of American life. That's true. But, you know, there's some critical race theorist people who say nothing has changed. What? Nothing has changed? Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. I'm not saying that his being elected president of the United States is a panacea. I I was wondering where you were going with that because I agree with you. I always tell people that one of the most integral questions we have to ask as black folk is how far have we come? It's, It's bombarded in simplicity. But the answer to that question is we've made progress. Anybody who denies that is lying. We just still have yet a ways to go. Yes. Again, I don't, you know, I'm not a triumphalist. No, we have not reached the mountaintop, the promised (laughs) land. But we, you know, we are doing better now than we did in 1950. And, you know, let's just, let's have room for nuance. Let's have room for embracing tensions, even contradictions. And sometimes I think that some of the, some of the critical race theory people, you know, I, I, I think are sort of simplistic, I think are somewhat sensationalist. And, you know, when I see that, I, I, I speak up and I, I just say that. Mm. 
This has been a powerful discussion. I could spend another 45 minutes with you. One, one day, I will come to Boston or Cambridge and, and see if we can grab a bite to eat. I'll let you take me to get some of those uh, lobsters and stuff that y'all got up there in that area. But in the meantime, how can people, where can people, when can people buy your book? I hope they do. It's a brilliant, br- the essays are brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, go to, go, to, go to your libraries, go to your independent bookstores, big on independent bookstores, very essential independent bookstores, go online. There are lots of places where you can uh, get my book, uh, Say It Loud, on race, law, history, and culture. The last thing I'd like to say is, you know, I, I hope you get my book, but if you do or if you don't, read and pay attention to what's going on. Listen to podcasts like this. We are in a very perilous moment. We are in a very perilous moment. Knowledge is a type of power, and it's a type of power that people need to tap into. So thank you very much for having me on your podcast, and good luck with it. Keep on pushing on. Happy birthday. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.